Good morning, and welcome to Monday Mornings. With Maddie and Morgan. I'm Maddie. And I'm Morgan. Hello! And sorry about last week. (laughs) (laughs) We've had a couple weeks that have been, you know, this time of year, it's busy. Yeah, it's busy. I'm adjusting to a new job. We did Thanksgiving, and then we did other things. And, you know, life's hard. Being a human is a lot of work. Give yourself some grace this holiday season. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I'm ready. I got my oat milk eggnog. Nice. Oh, I bought today at the grocery store the Chobani oat peppermint mocha creamer. That's what this... It's not... It's Chobani. Yeah, I saw they had the eggnog one too, but I have regular eggnog in the fridge. But it's that peppermint mocha oat milk creamer. Yeah, I saw that. I had to go to Stop and Shop yesterday to get cat food. And then I was like, you know what? I want a coffee beverage. And I went over and they had um, Chobani oat milk and cold brew on sale for $2. And it was like one of those big, big bottles. So I got that. And then I was like, you know what? Abby Fole sent me a Snapchat of eggnog that morning. So I was like, I'm going to go get some eggnog. And then I saw the oat milk eggnog and was like, well, gotta try it. So I love here we some are. Dog. It's good. My sister got coconut milk eggnog and it was disgusting. I can see that. I also I mean, don't love coconut milk anyway. So <laughs> yeah. I like coconut, just not coconut milk. No. No, thank I you. My curry. <laughs> for cooking okay. true true all right we're back with you today for part three of Wendy bulger dun, dun, dun. yes so i'm not gonna do a whole big long review of it because um that would probably take like a quarter of this episode so <laughs> <laughs> true <laughs> Welcome to part three of our Whitey Bulger series. And when we last left you, Whitey had just been arrested at his home in Santa Monica, California. He had been on the run for 16 years and was finally captured on June 22nd, 2011 with his longtime girlfriend, Catherine Grieg. Greg? Greg Grieg? Who knows? The world will never know. I don't care. Oh my gosh about his whole love square octagon situation. Yeah. It's, ugh, gross. Wife and girlfriend it. and affairs and God knows what else. Yeah. So uh, Whitey was the ripe old age of 81 at the time of his capture and was at the top of the FBI's most wanted list. Today we are going to wrap things up with some details of the trial, outcomes from other key players, as well of the death of James Whitey Bulger. Dun, dun, dun. After Bin Laden was taken out, Whitey might have been one of the only Americans not celebrating, solely because this bumped him up to first place on the FBI's top 10 most wanted list. Oh my gosh, that's such a funny connection that I would never would have thought of. Oh Yeah. So, while on the run, Whitey had built up a gun arsenal, which I think I may have mentioned last episode. If not, I've just known about it since last episode. Um, (laughs) 
he would visit gun shows in Nevada and eventually stockpiled over 30 guns that he kept in hollowed out books and cut out walls. He also amassed knives, $822,000 in cash, two shotguns and two rifles that he kept under his bed, and a pistol that he stored at his bedside. So everything's in his bedroom. <laughs> yep. He also didn't share a bedroom with Catherine. I don't talk about it, but, like, when he does get captured, he's like, they're like, do you have any guns in there? And he's like, yeah, I have so many of them, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, uh. <laughs> so since before the takedown of bin Laden, the FBI had been looking for ways to ramp up the search for Whitey. And they ended up buying 350 time slots during daytime TV programs that appealed towards women. In these time slots, they had a photo of Catherine Grieg on screen adding, Have you seen this woman? She is wanted for harboring James Whitey Bulger, a fugitive on the FBI 10 Most Wanted list. They attempted to evoke a sense of fear for Grieg's safety by including that he was wanted in relation to 19 murders, among other charges. They did this, quote, in hopes of mobilizing a sisterhood of female viewers that might help rescue the girlfriend, end quote. Oh my goodness. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't even know what to say about that. I, I don't hate it. It's smart. No, yeah, just simply based on the audience that true crime stuff has, it makes a lot of sense. Oh, yeah, and especially, like, daytime TV shows. You put it on during soap operas. You put the Tyra Banks show. True. She's where I learned that you can use the pointy end of a heel if you're wearing one as a weapon. True. Yep. So... (laughs) Best way to get my attention would to put it be to put it on TLC. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing is like there's like midday shows that there's like housewives or like whatever people home and Thousand Pound Sisters. Yes, our favorite show. So good, I love you, Tammy. So luckily for the FBI, this worked. There were three reports filed from a woman named Anna Bourne's daughter who was an Icelandic model that had befriended Grieg. So Anna and Grieg became friends because of a stray cat named Tiger that lived in the apartment complex, same apartment complex. I love that. Yes. (laughs) That's the most wholesome part of this whole story. Yep. So in one of Anna or Anna's, Reports, she states, quote, the person that I think is him is living at the Princess Eugenia Apartments in Santa Monica, California. Call me back immediately. They call themselves Charlie and Carol Gasco. So when the authorities get into contact with Anna, she tells them that Whitey had told her that he was from Chicago, but she could tell that he had a Boston accent. (laughs) So I was like... This bitch from Iceland can tell that you're not from Chicago. Like, <laughs> get a better cover. Uh, silly. Um, about Whitey, she said, quote, I got into many arguments with him. 
He's a racist and very anti-Obama. But the woman he is with was very pleasant, end quote. To confirm her statements with the FBI, they went to the apartment, apartment complex. And an FBI agent, Garia, spoke to Josh Bond, who was the manager of the apartment complex. He told them that he knew who Whitey Bulger is. He had gone to school in Boston, but he had never seen a picture of the man. I feel like there are several people that could be the case for for me. Yeah. I know the crime and I don't know what their face looks like. I feel that too. I was like, that makes sense. Especially when people are like, oh yeah, like when people are missing for like years on end and they're like in public and people are like, how did nobody notice? It's like, how would you know? Right. They're trying to figure out a way to get Whitey to come outside of his house, preferably unarmed. And in this, Josh warned the FBI that Whitey would often sit on his front porch. He like, was on the third floor, so it was like a balcony. And he would like try to, he would just look up and down the street with binoculars on, just like looking. So oh, they're like, okay. Suspicious. Yeah, so they're like, okay, sir, you literally didn't fucking realize that this man was weird. (laughs) That he was watching people with binoculars? That'd be a concern regardless of if he was a mob boss. (laughs) Yeah, I think Josh was really stoned this whole time. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Where are they now? I forget. California. Ah, checks out. (laughs) Yeah. I picture Josh being surfer bro oh yeah josh is a surfer bro and he came to boston for school and did not like the cold weather went back and was like i'm gonna manage this apartment complex and surf yep so they had to come up with a way to get him outside unarmed so they had josh call um the number that the couple had left and tell them that their storage unit had been broken into and he got their voicemail. So Catherine ends up calling back and he asked her if he should call the cops or if they wanted to meet him outside by the locker to check and see if anything was stolen before they call. <laughs> she was like, yeah, yeah, we'll come check it out in a few minutes. Um, so a few minutes later, Whitey emerges. He went down the stairs to the storage area and saw that the door had indeed been busted up. And then he saw the cops. An agent yelled, who are you? Whitey responded with, who the fuck are you, Homeland Security? (laughs) Like, at 81, he's still just such an ass. (laughs) I remember seeing the pictures of him walking down the stairs. So they told him to get on his knees, which he refused to do, due to the puddle of oil where they asked him to kneel. He was also 81, so... Yeah, I was like, you're asking an 81-year-old to kneel, like... I get it, but also, like, he's probably not armed right now. He's definitely not going to be able to get back up. Yeah. So, (laughs) the authorities are yelling that they would shoot, to which he responded, Go ahead, I'm not kneeling down in the oil. (laughs) He did agree to kneel kneel elsewhere if they would allow him, which they were like, don't fucking move, we're going to shoot you. So eventually, whatever he kneels, again, he asks, 
they ask him his name, and he just says, you know who I am. That's the most badass line I've ever heard. I know. I was like, okay. like but who I am. <laughs> so, Gar- Agent Cariola and a female detective knocked on apartment 303. Catherine Grieg opens the door and lets out a sigh. So, Catherine ends up pleading guilty and was sentenced to eight years in prison, plus a $150,000 fine for harboring a fugitive. She appealed her sentence, but was not. it was not granted due to the fact that she didn't tell the court about $134,000 that she had and a house that she had owned, still owned in Quincy, Mass. Classic. Yeah. So... James Whitey Bulger was captured on June 22nd, 2011, and pled not guilty on July 6th to 32 counts of racketeering, money laundering, extortion, and weapons charges. This also included complacency in 19 murders. So a whole lot of shit. Mm-hmm. I remember when this happened. Yeah. So the trial doesn't actually get started until 2013, which... For a while, I was like, I don't understand why. Like, why? Like, you have to have all the information to arrest him. So, like, why can't you go to trial? His lawyers gotta prepare. <laughs> yeah, I always think that about these giant cases because it's weird. It feels like the trials either happen like immediately or it takes years. Oh, and there's yeah. nothing in between. Yeah, it's very weird. <laughs> but whatever, law's gonna do what law's gonna do. Yeah. Judge Richard Stearns was the original judge appointed to the case, but he is actually removed before the case can begin because he had been a prosecutor for the U.S. Attorney's Criminal Division while Whitey was an informant. Oh, interesting. Yeah. He was replaced by Judge Denise J. Casper. On April 23rd, 2013, an immunity defense hearing started and on May 2nd his immunity was declined so Whitey really thought that he was gonna like just get away with being like oh I had FBI immunity he clearly doesn't know how FBI immunity works and the fact that it never fucking happens (laughs) like sorry you literally killed people and like broke federal laws it's not just like a oh sweep it under the rug type of crimes either like <laughs> right. 19 counts of murder is in an immunity situation so on may 15th judge casper also denied the defense's request to disclose other confidential informant identification as it was not relevant to the case also that can endanger many innocent or like just many people like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He just was like, let's just get all this fucking information out there. Like, no, sir, don't do that. So the next day, they begin background checks on the potential jury members. And this is because, I guess, there was a past murder trial case in Massachusetts that had to get thrown out after one of the jurors had been found out to have had a past criminal record. Interesting. And that same day, Whitey submits a list of 78 potential witnesses, including the previous judge. 
I don't think he was ever called to the stand, but probably not. No, um, I don't think I wrote it down, but there were a total of like seventy-two witnesses in this trial. Yikes! Yeah, it's a it's a doozy. So on June fourth, the jury selection begins. Out of the original eight hundred plus people screened, they selected out of two hundred and twenty-five potential jurors. Which is wow. still, like, a ton of people. That's a lot, yeah. But considering that mass number, I'm also really mad I wasn't 18 and could have not served on this jury, but... I think I was, what, 16? This was in 2013, so... Yeah. Yeah. April 2013, yeah. A week later, on June 12th, the court hears opening statements in the trial against James Whitey Bulger. The next big chunk of our story is from witness testimony and family impact statements from the courts. This was a big trial, so I'm sorry if I miss things or crimes, but I do plan on revisiting some of the crimes at a later point, just so most victim stories are heard, because there are a lot of them that don't get covered in this, just because there's literally so many. Mm-hmm. A former bookie named James Katz testified in court that he and others were forced to pay Whitey and the Winter Hill Gang to stay in business, stating that otherwise they would end up in the hospital. Katz was a bookie involved in illegal sports betting from 1971 to 1993. So John Marcherano was a huge player in this case and throughout Whitey's criminal career. And his testimony granted him only a 12-year sentence for admitting to about 20 murders that he wasn't involved with. Holy shit. Yeah. He decided to testify after finding out that Flemmy and Whitey had been informants the whole time. He was pissed. He was like, fuck you guys, honestly. Yeah. So during the cross-examination... Yeah! So during the cross-examination of Marcherano, the defense tried to make him look like a ruthless serial killer that would do anything for money. Which isn't super true. Like, he did kill a lot of people, but, like, he wasn't, like, doing it all for money. Like, that... Right. He wasn't getting that much money out of it. (laughs) He detailed the murders of Thomas King, John Callahan, and Roger Wheeler, which the defense again tried to poke holes in and blame it, blame the approval for the Wheeler hit on Flemmy and not Whitey. In an attempt to create doubt and throw blame at others, the defense really just tried to throw anyone else under the bus for like half of these things. Because I mean, Really, all you need is reasonable doubt. So if they're like, oh, no, 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 he didn't say that. It was Flemmy, and Flemmy okayed these hits. And just getting, like, a few of those things knocked out can lower sentences and everything, so. Especially with so many different players in this entire web of craziness that's happening. Yeah. It feels easy to just pick a random person and be like, oh, no, this person said that. (laughs) Yeah, especially if that person has already, like, pled out to something else and is testifying against you. You might as well, like... Or if that person is dead. True. 
Especially if they're dead, yeah. Uh, there was also testimony from shooting survivors and loved ones of victims or like family members of victims. And one of these was Diane Susana de Tenen. And she describes a case of mistaken identity. On March 8th, 1973, Diane and her boyfriend, Louis Lapiana, and his co-worker, Michael Milano, were shot at in their car while leaving the restaurant they worked at. She was injured, but both Lapiana and Milano were killed in the incident. The intended target was the manager of the restaurant, Al, Indian Al, Notarangeli? No turn jelly. I don't know. It's a very, very Italian name. It's like too Italian for my brain, which is saying a lot. So <laughs> we're just going to call him Indian Al because apparently that's what they called him. So he happened to have the same car as, um, I think, Milano. And so when they were driving, they thought that they were shooting at Indian Al, but they were not. And this is the first out of two mistaken identity cases in trying to kill Indian Al. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, so 11 days later, Frank Capizzi, Albert Plummer, and another man were shot in another mistaken Indian Al hit. Plummer passed away, and Capizzi fled from the Boston area. John Martirano confirmed that both of these hits were meant to kill Indian Al and not those men. Yikes. Yeah. So chunks of Whitey's 700 confidential informant file, 700 page confidential informant file were read to the court one day. These pages showed that Whitey had given information to the FBI on the Italians as well as his own people. Special Agent James Mara added that the files show that Whitey had been an informant back in 1971, but they stopped working with him after his handler deemed him to not be helpful. He was then brought back in 75 by our lovely little corrupt Agent John Connolly. Ah, he's back. Yep. Sandra Castucci testified that her husband, Richard, left the house on December 29, 1976, and had been killed after Connolly told Whitey that he was an informant and had disclosed the location of some gang members that had been hiding out in New York City. There was a lot of those just, like, wives of people or relatives of people being like, this was the last time I saw this loved one. Like, they went out for this, and then they didn't come back, and not nice. Yeah, that's sad. Dr. Richard Evans, the former chief medical examiner, testified against Whitey, describing the brutality and amounts of bullets in each victim. He said that the most brutal were William O'Brien and Brian Holleran, um, who was that guy that they said balloons in the air, the one where they were at dinner. Oh, yeah. They were each found with at least 20 gunshot wounds. Yikes. Yeah. A former customs agent testified that uh, McIntyre had been 
cooperating with authorities and had described drug trafficking as well as the IRA gun mess that went down, which is just further proof that they had reason to kill him. Mm -hmm. On July 18th, 2013, a witness had not yet been called that had not yet been called was found dead. Steven, well, that's not suspicious at all. Oh, yeah. I remember when this happened. Me too. Stephen Stippo, Ra- Stephen Stippo is his gang name, I guess, Rakes, was found dead in Lincoln, Massachusetts at the age of 59. So I drive through Lincoln every day to go to work. Um, <laughs> it is basically just a big farm. Um, <laughs> really? Yeah, Lincoln is not, like, a, like, my area of Massachusetts, my town is, like, the most suburby. The rest of them are all, like, just big old houses and farmland. I didn't know that. Yeah. So, he was killed and found dead out there, which is just super suspicious. Everybody, including the police, thought it was super suspicious. Like... This is some shit out of a movie, like. <laughs> Ugh. So Whitey never took the stand at his trial. He also felt that he wasn't given adequate defense, calling it a sham. Excuse me. So really quick, <laughs> the slight agreement side of things with him before we move on. Just because he is really shitty and does deserve everything that comes to him. But there was one juror who ended up befriending Whitey after the trial. And she felt bad after finding out about the whole MK Ultra thing. And felt that his attorney should have brought it up during the trial. Yeah, that was a mistake on his defense part. Yeah, so that is something that I do feel like that's just, like, bad lawyering. Like, you really should have brought that up because, like... Yeah, he was cognizant of what he was doing during all these crimes, but you might be able to blame that on, like, turning him that way. So, she basically says that this would have swayed her decision as a juror, knowing all of this and, like, the amount, like, trying to determine the amount that he is at fault. Basically saying that, like, yeah, Whitey is a criminal, but to what? amount does he have fault here like maybe like because he hadn't killed anybody before he went and had those mk ultra things done like lsd trials done to him Mm -hmm. so could that imply that if the government hadn't done this would he have not been a killer would he have been able to rejoin society would he have been able to do any of those things so basically they're just saying that basically the government made him this way and then also gave him information to continue to keep killing and then allow him to get away with it. And then it's the government's fault. I smell a conspiracy theory in making. Yeah, that was my conspiracy theory that I made up. So. Like it. But you want to hear mine? <laughs> yes. <laughs> my conspiracy theory is that. As part of MK Ultra, they were trying to create criminals. So oh, like yeah. they were trying to create either good leaders or criminals or both. So it was by design that the government gave him 
a dose of LSD that they knew would turn him into a monster. <laughs> mm-hmm. Especially because he's already predisposed, like he's in prison. Right. And then there was that one, there was like one serial killer who was either at like Harvard or Stanford or something, and they asked him to ju- do MK Ultra testing stuff. Mm-hmm. And then he became a serial killer. Mm-hmm. So it's like, were they trying to make a superhuman that was doing good, but they accidentally got the one with a traumatic brain injury from childhood? Right. <laughs> what I'm saying, yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. Um, stay tuned, people. We'll have a whole series on MK Ultra eventually. It's yeah. a big one. <laughs> It'll be a while. <laughs> but so. Anyways, back to reality. I don't think the government has fault here. There have been plenty of people that have used, taken, done LSD and not become a massive crime boss and killed so many people. Facts. So, the jury began deliberation on August 6th, and on August 12th, they had come back with a verdict of guilty on all but one of the charges, and 11 out of the 19 murders. Good. Judge Casper sentenced Whitey to two consecutive life sentences and was required to pay $19.5 million to the families of all 19 victims, even the ones not deemed proven. The state of Florida and Oklahoma agreed to wait to try him in their states, which he would have potentially faced the death penalty. He was also ordered to pay $6 million to the family of the Oklahoma victim, Roger Wheeler. After sentencing, Whitey was sent to the Coleman, I don't know if it's Coleman II or Coleman II, one of those, United States Penitentiary in Sumterville, Florida. He did cause some issues during his time here. Like, he was a super shitty inmate and had to be disciplined many times. Shocker. He's a shitty person and he's geriatric at this point. Yeah. So, um, one time he had to be disciplined for um, masturbating in front of a male staff member. Ew. Yeah. It's like, I feel like there's lights out time for a reason, sir. Yeah, keep that to yourself. Literally. Another time, he threatened a female medical staff member. That's not a surprise. No. At some point, Whitey became wheelchair-bound. He could stand, but he could not walk. I guess he kept, like, falling out of bed and hurting his hip. Get this man a railing for his bed. I was like, just put his mattress on the floor, maybe. Like, I don't know, like, do something. Like, if he's falling out of bed and he's in his 80s, like, figure it out. I feel like they should probably have, like, a, like, an old folks home that's a prison. Yeah, like a geriatric prison facility. Yeah. Because it's also just, like, you can't have, like, 80-something-year-olds with 20-something-year-olds. Imagine how dangerous those showers are for a geriatric person. First of all, you're going to slip and die. Gross. All right. Ugh. On October 28th, 2018, Whitey was transferred from a center in Oklahoma City to United States Penitentiary Hazleton in West Virginia. 
Less than 12 hours after being transferred, James Whitey Bulger was beaten to death at the age of 89. On security? What? Oh, yeah. I was going to say the end, like, the end of his life, but then I was like, but people are going to think it's the end of the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Like, why is there still five minutes? On security camera footage, they show two inmates kind of roll Whitey in his wheelchair out of security camera view. Oh, fuck. Which, he's a really, really bad guy, but, like, man is helpless at this point. Like, just smother him. Like, Like, just smother him with a pillow. Like, it's not that, it's not that hard. Just, if you really gotta take him out. He's so old that just let him suffer at that point. That's a bigger punishment than putting him out of his misery. Exactly. So they then beat him to death with a padlock that was inside of a sock. Fuck. And a shiv. Ooh. According to the guards, he was unrecognizable. His eyeballs had essentially popped out of his head. Ew. The man responsible for killing Whitey? A mafia hitman from Western Massachusetts named Fotios Freddy Gias. He was 51 and serving a life sentence for the 2003 murder of the head of the Genovese crime family. Oh, fuck. Yeah. He's hardcore. Yeah. So, again, I agree that Whitey sucks and should die, like, not a great death, but... What the fuck? So, Freddie's lawyer said he knew nothing of his client's involvement, but he absolutely fucking hated a snitch. He went on to add that his feelings towards cooperators are so strong that when given the chance to avoid a life sentence by cooperating, he declined. So he just hates himself, is what I'm hearing. Yeah, I was like, you're literally such a little bitch. Like, just grow up. So a former Boston police commissioner was baffled by this. Not that it happened, because, like, obviously someone's going to try to go after Whitey in prison. Like, just just how it is. But that they let it happen. He was shocked that they could let Whitey be in the same area as this man one who was a convicted hitman for organized crime from Massachusetts, let alone that he was even in general population. Right, I'm surprised by that. Especially just less than 12 hours after being transferred into a new facility. Yeah, I guess I always thought that, obviously I haven't been to prison, but for some reason I always thought they did like a, quarantine type I know that's like when you first go to prison they do that Uh, like for the first time ever yeah but I feel like it would be very similar with transferring as well because they have to slowly because there's different like social norms in each prison I would assume right it's not hierarchies and release the new kids into prison willy-nilly I'm only thinking from my knowledge of, like, Orange is the New Black and... Me too. And, um... Oh, God. 
no, that one Netflix show with the underage girls that are in jail. That was yes. my favorite. Yes. Moving on. <laughs> anyway. Last but not least, this isn't the last thing because I'm also going to read you something after. Um, let's wrap up with what the fuck happened to everybody else. Oh. So, FBI agent John Connolly was convicted in 2002 for aiding Whitey and given a 10-year sentence. He was later convicted for murder because he had given information that helped the gang members carry out murders. He is currently serving time in a Florida prison and is eligible for parole in 2039 at the ripe age of 98. (laughs) I like how they just send it, they ship everybody to Florida. I so <laughs> get out of here. <laughs> I guess I don't know much about the prison system other than that it's awful. But I just assumed when you committed a crime, you stayed in the state that you live in or like that you committed your crime in. Yeah, I'm sure my guess, this is a long shot, but because these were federal crimes. Yeah. A federal prison, so that limits your choices. And I'm sure it has a lot to do with overcrowding and population control. And I know they definitely have to move people around because you can't, like with Whitey's killer, you shouldn't have two people like that in the same population Mm -hmm. just because there's known hatred between the two, probably. Right, or if you just continually have conflicts within your inmate population, then yeah, with people or whatever. Oh, I forgot to add this, but <clears throat> the prison that Whitey had been killed in, that was, like, the third or fourth killing in, like, the past, like, chunk of time. I forget if it was, like, 30 or 60 days. There was, like, a whole bunch of, there was, like, a lot of shit going on. I think they were, like, understaffed. There was, like, it was not... That's fucked up. Like a place to be sending a high profile <laughs> prisoner. <laughs> so, Catherine Grieg, who we did talk briefly about earlier, was sentenced in 2012 to eight years in prison and was serving in a Minnesota prison and eligible for release in 2020. She ended up at having 21 months added to her sentence for refusing to testify at Whitey's trial. Catherine is now living with her twin sister back in Southie. She was released from jail and sent back to Massachusetts in the summer of 2019 under house arrest until fall of 2020. Yeah. I feel like it's not long enough, but whatever. She didn't kill anybody, so. Yeah, those ones are hard. Like, when they didn't really do anything, but they knew about shit. Yeah, and it's just, like, I get that you're, like, just living your life now, but, like, you didn't have to go with him. Yeah. So, John Marcherano confessed to 20 killings, but did not like to be called a mass murderer or serial killer, as we mentioned earlier. He preferred the term vigilante. And thought that there was honor and integrity in what he was doing, or at least he felt that way at the time. He's a fool. Yeah, this guy is a little messed up. 
he did testify at Whitey's trial, as we talked about, and was given a 14-year sentence. He was released in 2007 and given $20,000 to start a new life. Oh, my God. He also rejected the offer to join the Witness Protection Program and stayed in Boston. Oh, my God. And that's, like, really ballsy because he was released in 2007 and they still hadn't caught Whitey. Yeah. He definitely knew more than he told them. Oh, yeah. So, Kevin Weeks was arrested in 1999 on racketeering charges and cooperated with authorities. He provided a detailed account of the Holleran-Donahue murders and other terrible things. Weeks talks about how he got started with Whitey. They would just drive around Boston collecting envelopes of money, and he would occasionally have to beat people up. Stephen Flemmy ended up serving a life sentence for 10 murders, including his girlfriend, Deborah Davis. He testifies at Whitey's trial that they both had been working with the FBI for 15 years, beginning in 1975. In the 70s and 80s, there were around 19 killings. Of the One of these was Flemmy's stepdaughter, Deborah Hussey. Oh, no. Whitey had strangled her after she started using drugs, getting arrested, and dropping their names to get out of trouble. Holy fuck. Yeah. So he killed her? Whitey did. Ugh. So, in 1995, Flemmy was charged with racketeering and extortion. In 2003, he pled guilty to 10 murders without possibility of death of the death penalty for the Florida and Oklahoma murders. He was then required to testify against Whitey and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is Whitey Bulger Part 3. Thank you. A round of applause. Thank you. Good job. Hope you all learned a lot. All right. So now... Just to, I guess, do right by true crime podcasts and not just talk about the killer and criminal, I wanted to read you a list that I have of victims of Whitey Bulger and the Winter Hill Gang. This is obviously not a full list because I don't think that's fully known. There are some people that are thought to have been killed by Whitey or the Winter Hill Gang or any of those other people, but haven't been confirmed or proven and all that. So, Deborah Hussey, Deborah Davis, Brian Halloran, Paul McGonigal, Edward Connors, Thomas King, Richard Castucci, Roger Wheeler, Michael Donahue, John Callahan, Arthur Bucky Barrett. John McIntyre, Michael Milano, Al Plummer, William O'Brien, James Spike O'Toole, and Al, Indian Al, Nutterangali. Rest in peace. Rest in peace, and I'm sorry, and I hope that your families at least got some closure after all this shit, and I know that there are some funny quotes about people like popping champagne and stuff 
after hearing that Whitey died and all that. So, good for them. <laughs> yeah, he definitely caused a lot of pain to a lot of people. Yeah, and uh, we don't love that. So, maybe, like, don't do that. That's my advice for the week. Good job. I approve. Uh, yeah. Good job. Thanks. I enjoyed this series. This is the longest one we've done, but I liked it. I know, and it was... Let me tell you. It was it was a big one. I really should have read a book for it. I'm probably going to read a book and then be like, guys, there's so many more things that I didn't know. But... I think um, All Souls is the book that I've read. Yeah. I think. That's a good one. I liked it. Well, good job. You definitely put in the work. Thanks. Happy weekend, everybody. Yeah, happy weekend. Hope you enjoyed this not-so-mini-mini episode. (laughs) Have a good weekend, and, yeah, don't do anything we wouldn't do. Yeah, um, get some eggnog and some boozy hot chocolate. Um, I'm gonna go do that and decorate my Christmas tree. Yes. All right. I said that, and my darling gray cat just got up and stretched. <laughs> she was like, "All right." She's <laughs> like, "Yes, it's time to get up." <laughs> All right. Do you like-